You might open your Bibles to Acts chapter The kids ages four years old through fourth grade. Four years old through fourth grade, you are dismissed to Children's Church. Losing some lights back there. <laughs> so, Acts chapter number 12, we're going to continue on our series through the book of Acts. Now, as we come into Acts chapter number 12, 
I kind of get the feeling that uh, Luke has a sense of humor, you know. Um, I, I am hesitant sometimes to tell jokes. I know I told one last Sunday morning. But uh, unless it applies to the message, I usually avoid a direct joke. But uh, in, the, in the Acts chapter number 12, we see Luke telling this story. And there is so much humor that is packed into what is going on in this story. It, even, in, even in a dark chapter, really, when you think about it. But you have here Peter. Peter is imprisoned. He's locked up between two guards. And, and he's got two guards out front. And an angel comes to him. And tells him to get up, get dressed, and, and follow him. And Peter's half asleep the whole time that he's being rescued from, from the prison. He's, in, he's basically in a daze. He thinks this is a vision. And by the time that he gets outside the prison, it says that um, here, where is it? Sorry. He says he came to himself. Okay? He wakes up. He's aware. Okay, wow, something just happened. you know. But he's in a haze this whole time that he's being delivered from the prison. And then he goes and he walks up to the house of Mary the uh, mother of John Mark, and knocks on the door, and a servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door, and, and sees that it's Peter, and she's so excited, she leaves him knocking at the door, okay, <laughs> you know, just standing there, and, and it says here, he continues to knock repeatedly, and, and she is let, let into the chapter, but honestly, even though we see this humor and everything that Luke has in this chapter, he doesn't tell these stories just to give us a chuckle and say, oh, that's kind of cute, right? That's not why Luke is telling, telling these, these events in this chapter. Really, the book of Acts, chapter 12, it starts with Herod arresting James and killing James. But it ends with Herod himself being killed by God because it's showing a contrast between two men. Herod wants to persecute Peter. He wants to persecute the church of God. And in the end, Herod is the one whose life is taken and, and, and Luke is making that central contrast. But tucked into the middle of this chapter is a theme, that I, a sub-theme that I want us to focus on and to meditate on this morning. And that is, the, that is the theme of prayer. I think prayer is oftentimes one of the most direct links that we have to God. And yet many, many, many Christians don't take advantage of this opportunity that they have to communicate, to have relationship with God through prayer. And a lot of times we don't value it because we think it takes too much time. I mean, how many of us spend a decent amount of time praying in the morning? It's because we've got our busy lives ahead of us. We've got everything going on ahead of us that we think we just don't have the time to do it, to really invest ourselves in true, meaningful, heartfelt prayer and communion with God. Sometimes we don't value prayer because we don't see the results we were hoping to see. Maybe you've been praying for something for a long time, and it just doesn't seem like there is any change. What's the temptation? Give up. Why bother? I'm wasting my time, right? Sometimes we don't pray because we'd rather do other things. We've got other things that excite us, that make us happy, and we seek after those things, and we fill our lives with those things. And so, yeah, we don't have any time, time for prayer. And I feel like churches a lot of times, the church prayer meetings, it's probably one of the least attended services in the history of the church, right? But the church prayer meetings, why is it, why is it that people don't, aren't enthused about prayer meetings? I think a lot of times it's because we've slipped into this formulaic, formalistic, dead, dry prayer meetings. I mean, we struggle with that here. I'm going to be honest. We do. We struggle with that here. 90% of the time. That, that is where we're at. And yeah, people don't want to come because it's not real. 
It's not authentic. It's just something we do because it's the weekly schedule, because we're expected to do it. And so they drop out of prayer meetings and they don't see the value of prayer. And I honestly, I don't know what to do about the deadness of our prayer meetings because to be honest, it's an individual heart issue. And I can't change y'all's hearts. I can only change mine. And so I'm going to do the best that I can to change my heart whenever I pray. And I, I know I'm not throwing stones because when I pray for meals and when I pray for these services, I can so easily slip into just doing the form, formula. I was reminded of this going to the funeral for my grandmother. She was a Catholic, Roman Catholic. Very, very ritualistic funeral. Praising Mary, having the mass, sing-song prayers that have been pre-written and pre-set pre out. That's ritualism. That's deadness. We don't want that, do we? And I think a lot of us don't value prayer because we've come to our independent Baptist churches and we have our independent Baptist ways of dead, ritual, formulistic types of prayers. We recite our grocery list to God rather than commune and bow before a holy and a righteous God when we come in our prayer meetings. And so my, my, my heart aches to see this lack in our churches, to see this lack in my own life. And I think prayer is not something that we should run from. It's not something we should neglect. It's not something we should just do out of habit. Prayer is essential to our Christian lives, and prayer can change the world. Prayer can move mountains. Prayer can do many, many things if we would just value it. And it's not that prayer is magical. Prayer is only, is only powerful because of the person we are praying to, and that is our Father, God. Our God is powerful, and with him, nothing is impossible. And so prayer avails us of this opportunity to meet with that God and to have relationship with that God and to seek him to do something. And so as we get into the book of Acts, chapter number 12, we're going to divide it into three sections. First of all, we're going to establish what was the problem. Why did they need to pray? What caused there to be a need in, these chapter, in this chapter? Verses 1 through 6 says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So the problem, the situation that's, that's come about, that's causing there to be a need for prayer, is that Herod, the political ruler, is reaching out, and he has decided to start killing the leaders in the church, the apostles, because he knows that if he can kill the leadership, maybe the movement will, will split apart. It'll come to nothing. Get rid of those apostles and it'll all dwindle out. It'll fizzle out. Now this, this Herod, there are many Herods in the Bible. Okay, we have Herod the Great, right? Herod the Great was the one that we know in the time of Jesus who killed the babies in Bethlehem, right? So pretty bad guy. This Herod generally was not actually viewed as a bad guy. Okay? A lot of people liked this Herod. This is Herod Agrippa I. Uh, Josephus, writing about him, says, Now this king was by nature very beneficent and liberal in his gifts, and very ambitious to oblige people with lar such large donations. And he made himself very illustrious by the many chargeable or expensive presents he made them. He took delight in giving and rejoiced in living with good reputation. His, Agrippa's temper was mild and equally liberal to all men. He was humane to foreigners and made them sensible of his liberality. He was in like manner rather of a gentle and compassionate temper. Accordingly, he loved to, continue, to live continually at Jerusalem and was exactly careful in the observance of the laws of his country. 
He therefore kept himself entirely pure, nor did any day pass over his head without its appointed sacrifice. Now, boiling all that down, we get this picture of Agrippa. Agrippa loved to be loved. He gave lots of money to people. He made them happy. He wanted everybody to like him as, as a king over this region. And it's an important feature of his character. In fact, when we get to verse number three, we see that exact attribute of Agrippa. And it says that he, he reached out to, and, sorry, and because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. We don't always know everybody's motivations. We don't know Joe Biden's motivations for everything that he does. We can assume, we can make assumptions. But you know what? God tells us and gives us a glimpse of Herod's motivations. Why is he trying to kill James? And why is he trying to kill Peter? Because he saw that it pleased the Jews. He wants to make the Jews happy. And so he is, he is reaching out to kill these people. And, and, but he's got a problem here. It says, then were the days of unleavened bread. His problem was it's a holiday. Do you kill people on holidays? Not usually. Okay, so in, in the Jewish culture, they don't put people to death. They don't, they don't try them on the holidays. And he's got an even bigger problem because this isn't one day a holiday like Easter or Christmas. This is seven days of holidays. So he's got Peter locked up in a prison for those seven days before he can do anything about him. And, and he takes every precaution to make sure that Peter does not escape. Because this has happened before, right? They, they, we've had people who've been arrested and they get out and, and Herod wants to make sure that that problem doesn't happen again. In verse four, he says, and when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. So what this is, that word quaternions, I know you guys don't know what that word means, but basically it's a group of four soldiers, okay? They had four groups of four soldiers, 16 total, that would rotate in course, so four at a time would be guarding Peter. And, and later on we see that two of them, verse 6, it says that uh, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. So he's got two soldiers beside him that he's chained to, and then he's got two of them out front guarding the door. Herod does not want anything to happen. He is taking every precaution that he could possibly take in order to keep this from, from an escape from happening. <clears throat> and so really what we see here is that the church and Peter, they faced what seemed to be an impossible situation. Herod has arrested him. He's got him securely guarded. And there is no way that, any, that anything could happen that is going to get Peter out of that prison. And I think when, when it comes to prayer, there are many situations that we face at times in our lives that can seem to be impossible. This week I was doing my devotions reading about uh, Isaac being born to Abraham and Sarah, and then also reading about a little bit later on uh, the whole situation with Jacob and Leah. And I started meditating about the, the idea of infertility and how some people, you, some women face infertility and it seems like this is an impossible situation something that you can never get across you maybe you're wishing God would just answer your prayers and give you a child you don't feel like he's listening or maybe you've, you've even slipped into thinking he doesn't care because he hasn't answered my prayers in in this situation and stories like Sarah and Rachel and Hannah all remind us that God can do the impossible in his time and in his will. Remember the words of Mary. 
with God, nothing is impossible. Maybe you're facing a serious illness, cancer. Okay, a lot of, a lot of people face cancer, and there, there isn't always a lot of hope when you're facing cancer. Um, but I think of stories like King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was going to die of a, of a sickness, but God extended his life for a long period of time. And then I think of more practical examples. Somebody you guys would know, uh, Mrs. Prentice, back when I was a kid here at this church, right? Mrs. Prentice got, was diagnosed with cancer. She was not given very long to live. I don't know exactly how long it was. It was, it was a very short period of time. But we all prayed, and God extended her life a minimum 10 years, I believe it was. Yeah, minimum of 10 years after that point. God can answer, and he can work even in impossible situations like that. Maybe you've been praying for a child that isn't saved or has walked away from the Lord, and you think, there's no hope. I don't see them coming back. They don't want to talk to me. I, and, and so you're giving up. You're, you're facing this impossible situation, and you feel like your prayers don't matter. I think of a, a biblical example actually mentioned in this chapter, John Mark, okay? John Mark, what did he do? He went on a mission trip with Paul and Barnabas, and then for some reason, he quit, and he gave up. He walked away from it, and, it, and, the, and the, the issue was so bad that Paul and Barnabas split over it, right? There was, Paul was dead set that John Mark should not be allowed to come with them again because he had walked away from them during this, this journey. But when we get to the end of days, when, when Paul's dying, he writes a letter, and he says, bring John Mark, for he is profitable for me. There is hope. There is hope that even an impossible situation like that can be turned around. And so when we pray, don't lose heart, don't lose hope. I know this church was facing an impossible situation in verses 1 through 6. Peter was bound by two guards and guarded by two guards and in a prison and there didn't seem to be any hope that he would ever get out and in fact James had already been killed so they probably had lost heart but verse number five is key here verse five here says Peter therefore was kept in prison but and I've got this circled in red but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him the second point we're going to look at is the prayer of the church we'll start in verse five but then look at Verses 12 through 17 here. When faced with an impossible situation, this church did not cower in fear and give up all hope. That is not what they did. Their first re response was to pray because they valued prayer. It was an important part of their lives. They saw its need and they knew that God could act if he so willed. So I wanted to point out some things about their prayer. What was their prayer like as we see it in this text? First of all, we can see that their prayer was continual. We have those words, pray, that, that they prayed without ceasing. Now, that's technically not a Greek word in the text. It's part of the tense of the, the verb, okay? But it's continually. They continually prayed. They were not stopping. And, and so they didn't give up. They were continually praying for Peter. And sometimes I think we get, we get exhausted praying for the same thing over and over and over again, and we begin to feel like it's not even worth it. But our, prayer, our prayers are a part of our Christian armor, are they not? You guys remember Ephesians chapter 6? One of the elements of our, our, our armor that we fight our battle with is prayer. What do, Christian, what do soldiers do with armor? Anybody? They put it on, okay, that's a good answer, not the one I'm looking for. They fight with it. They wear it to fight, right? Okay? Now, is fighting an easy thing? 
No, it's a battle, right? It's hard. You, you do this so you can fight. And, it, and so we have this concept that there is a struggle in prayer. In fact, Paul later talks about labors of prayer. Sometimes prayer can be hard work, but we still need to continually labor and not give up. Jeremiah 12, verse 5 is a verse I oftentimes think about when I think about this topic. It says, if thou hast run with the footmen and they have wearied thee, then how, can thou con how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace wherein thou trustest they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? The church is given an example not to get weary in well-doing. And we do well by praying. So don't quit just because you're tired, because you're exhausted, but continually be praying. So they, con they prayed continually. Second thing we see here is they prayed fervently. A word that didn't get translated as in the text is a word that literally means fervent or passionately. <clears throat> the word fervent, when we think of it, we think of, we think of passion. James 5 verse 16 uses a similar word. In English it's the same, but in Greek a different word says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And that word there means with energy with passion, with zeal behind it. That's the concept with, with, with fervency. How often do we fervently pray for something? What if you had this, think back to when you were a kid, okay? This, this is an illustration that just popped into my head, so forgive me, okay? But think back to when you were a kid. Was there any toy that you really, really wanted for Christmas, okay? How did you, how did you ask your parents? Did you say, mother, if thou willest, will you please give me this Barbie doll that I've asked for? Okay, is that how you responded? No. Okay, so, no, you probably said, Mom, please, please, please give me this thing that I am asking for. There was a passionate, there was, there was a fervency to that type of prayer. Think of the, uh, this, the, the parable that Jesus told about the, uh, the widow the, and, the, and the judge, and she kept on knocking and knocking and knocking and asking. And Jesus said, because she wouldn't give up, he finally relents and he finally does what she wants to, you know. But there is a fervency to our prayer, a passion behind it with energy. Do we put our hearts into our prayers? I think a lot of times we don't, again, because we're going back to that formulistic deadness that we're so used to. We're used to just reading words on a page and bringing those, those words to God instead of putting our hearts into our prayers. Thing is, God already knows what the needs are. So why pray? God, God wants us to pray because he wants our hearts, ultimately. It's not just a recitation of magical words. So many of our prayers are, are prayed as if we are reading from a script, but we need to put our hearts into it. We need to truly want and desire and earnestly plead for the things that we are praying for. So they prayed without ceasing. They prayed fervently. They also prayed pretty specifically. Notice the rest of the text, it says, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. They weren't just praying a general generic prayer. We see this a lot of times when it's praying for missionaries, right? You'll have somebody say, bless all the missionaries around the world and keep them safe. Okay, how generic is that? Okay, so what that shows is a lack of knowledge of, of the individual missionaries and their individual needs and a lack of concern for their individual needs. It's just general. God can answer those prayers. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying he can't, but the church needs to pray specifically. 
for needs. We need to be aware of those specific needs. And they prayed for one specific need. They prayed for Peter. They prayed for him. He had a specific need. That's what they continually prayed for. That's what they fervently prayed for in this text. I also wanted to point out that in, the, in these verses, we see men and women praying together as a church. Okay? I know we, on Wednesdays, a lot of times we separate the men and the women. But you know what? That's not exactly what the Bible says we, we ought to do. You know, um, I think we get into this, this tradition sometimes of men and women praying together because maybe the women aren't comfortable praying in front of the men or we have this wrong view of ma ma male headship within the church that we think that men and women can't pray together. But notice in verse 5 here it says that prayer was made of the church, the whole church. And then as we get into verses 12 through 17, it says, And when they had, had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together. What were they doing? They were praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel named, uh, came to hearken named Rhoda. Okay? Now here we have the, this, this damsel comes to the door to let Peter in. But notice the verb that follows it. It says, this damsel came. The idea here, the implication Luke's trying to get across here is that she left the prayer meeting to go answer the door, to let Peter in, in the door. And we know that, that Rhoda was involved in this prayer meeting. Why, how do we know that? Because she is so passionate and so happy when Peter comes to the door. Her heart is invested in this, in this prayer meeting right here. And so we here we have a church of men and women all together, gathered together, praying, united in prayer. There is a special element to prayer when the church can be united together, not separated, not individuals, not, not, uh, not even couples, not even just random groups, but united together because we all have the same purpose, the same passion, the same heart for the same request. And Rhoda had that request. She had that heart. She had that gladness when she saw God answer their prayers when Peter knocks on the door. But also we see in these verses that even though this church was continually, fervently, passionately praying, they didn't necessarily have the strongest faith. Let's look at uh, verses 15 through 17 here. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that, would, that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. So when, when Rhoda comes and tells them, Peter's at the door, Peter's at the door, their response is not to say, great, God's answered our prayers. No, that's not their response. Their response is to say, it's a ghost. Okay? So it's not, it's not really him. It's him in spirit. He must have been killed already. Now he's come knocking on our door as a ghost. Now, why they use the word angel, there's a, there's a couple different opinions about this. Some people believe that, some, some Jews believed that everyone has a guardian angel that supposedly looks exactly like you, okay? So some people think that's what's going on here. Other Jews believed that when you die, you are on the earth for three days in the form of an angel, in the, the state of an angel for three days before you go wherever you're going to go. Okay, so th that could, either of those things could have been in their minds, but just because it's written here, they said it is an angel, doesn't mean the Bible's teaching either of those things, okay? Just make that clear. Um, Satan said a lot of things in the Bible, and they weren't true, right? Okay, so just because they say it's his angel doesn't mean that that's actually how things happen to be. But they don't believe, at the very least, they do not believe Peter is physically standing at the door. They had an element of a lack of faith. 
But I think the point that we can derive from this is this, that just because you don't have the greatest faith doesn't mean God can't answer your prayers. We don't have to be spiritual giants just to have God answer our prayers. Faith is important, but how much faith is important? Jesus said in Matthew 17, verse 20, and Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief, for, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Jesus wasn't ultimately trying to, to say that uh, you have to have a mountain-sized faith to do these things. No, what Jesus is pointing out is that you don't have to have a whole lot of faith for God to do this, because really, the power is not your faith. The power is God, just trusting God. God still answers their prayers even when they lacked the confidence that it could happen. That's, that's the, the, the lesson that we see from this story. It isn't that they had no faith, but they, they lacked the faith to really fully believe that God was going to do what they were asking them to do. So we see the problem, we see their prayer, thirdly, we see the deliverance. I skipped over the middle section because I want to see the answer to their prayer. And verse 7 through 11 says, And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise, up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands, and the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. And when they were past the first and the second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. Now when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel, and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod, and from all the expectations of the people of the Jews. So here we see Peter is delivered, an angel comes in with a bright light and, and tells Peter, get up, get dressed, and follow me. Leads him through multiple wards of the, of the prison and out the iron gate to the street. When Peter wakes up, he realizes, God has delivered me. And when I hear this story, I can't help but think of Charles Wesley's words from the hymn, And Can It Be? Let me just read these to you. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now, I can get Charles Wesley was thinking of this song when, when he wrote those words, because that's an exact summary of what has just happened here. But God is able to do above and beyond what we would even think. Again, I'm pointing us back to this was an impossible situation. The church did not have a whole lot of faith that God was going to deliver Peter, right? And God was able to do something that they couldn't even imagine was possible. They had weak faith, but they did have faith. And so God, God was able to do above what they ever thought he could do. But there is one caution I need to make at, at the outset of this message. God's will is not always to deliver us from every impossible situation that we face. This is an important lesson from this text. Because it starts off with the death of whom? Death of James. Do you think they prayed any less for James? Do you think they, they, didn't, they weren't passionate enough or they just didn't have faith and so James died, right? James didn't get delivered. Peter did. The reason behind that is sometimes 
Some things are just not part of God's will, and we need to be able to trust and depend on him in those situations. Peter was delivered, and we praise God for that, and the ministry that he was able to have later on was great, but James was put to death. 1 John 5, verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. There are going to be some times when God's answer is no. Those will exist. We need to have a heart that can trust him, that he knows what's best behind those situations. I've heard it stated quite often that God will never put you into a situation you can't handle or an impossible situation. I honestly think that that's pretty much a lie, pretty much, okay? I know where people are coming from. They twist a Bible verse out of context to get there. It's not completely true. God does allow us to go through impossible situations, but he gives us the strength to go through them, okay? God will never put you in a situation that he won't enable you to go through. But he does put us in impossible situations. Why? Because it wakes us up to the fact that we need him. And our response should be prayer at those moments. We have so much in prayer that we don't take advantage of as believers. God is not sitting there wishing we'd just shut up. It's not what God's doing. He's not wishing that we would be quiet. And, he, and he's not up there hard-hearted and wanting to withhold things from us. That's not the heart of our God. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. The church could do so much more when it comes to prayer if we would catch a vision for what prayer can do. Prayer can change things because our God can change even the impossible. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll have a time of invitation this morning. just ask you to search your heart and just think about how often we give in to the temptation just to say some words because we feel it's expected of us or it's tradition or or we'd have these needs but we haven't entered into our prayers the way that we ought to God is powerful God is almighty do we truly believe that I think if we did we'd spend more time on our knees praying before him Daniel, do you mind closing us in prayer this morning?